A beacon of hope. You may be our only chance. Lights the way home. Far be it for me to turn down an opportunity to become a hero. But a mission for help goes haywire. What the hell are you doing in my sick bed? Can two holographic doctors destroy the enemy? You're the Mark One EMH, the inferior program. Before they destroy each other... I'm a doctor, not a commando. On the next Star Trek Voyager... Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton, going into multi-vector assault mode. So we are going to talk this week about another classic episode. We're going to talk about Voyager's message in a bottle. Voyager's unlikely turning point? Well, this is an interesting one. I think we originally wanted to tackle this one. We've been doing our classic episodes for the last few months. And, well, look, we've been doing a lot of the episodes that are serious. You know, In the Pale Moonlight is where we started off with. We did things like Galileo 7, E Squared. I think this is more of a rollicking adventure, perhaps the most uh, like fun adventure, like the one with the most levity out of all the classics we've been doing for the last few months as well. And then... It occurred to me as we got further and further into this one, Cam. This one sets up so much of what's going to be happening with the rest of the series. We have not just like smaller arcs like the Herogen, but this is a bit of a turning point with regards to Star Trek's, or Voyagers specifically, their relationship to their journey home. They're making contact with the Alpha Quadrant. Starfleet is now aware that Voyager is still out there, even after being officially, you know, uh, declared lost 14 months earlier. I think this is a bit of a turning point. You get things like Project Pathfinder going forward, which plays into the Doctor's arc as well. I think this is a very important one, a stealthily important one that a lot of people might overlook and just kind of think, oh, this this is kind of a fun episode. But what's your overall takeaway on something like this featuring uh, one Andy Dick who was um, far less problematic back when this premiered in the <laughs> 1990s? Yeah, no kidding, right? Like, you read the stories of just the glowing experiences they had with him on set and everything. I'm like, mm, don't think we'll be seeing Andy Dick at a Star Trek con anytime soon. <laughs> no. Not, certainly not the uh, Chicago convention scheduled. Still scheduled for April, right, Cam? Yeah. No, no. They would have to have guests for him to be there. <laughs> true, true. You know, why don't we talk about the uh, Chicago convention uh, a little bit later on in this episode? Because I think there's some weird stuff we need to dive into. But uh, yeah, C- Cam, uh, the Andy Dick thing, like, it was fun for me at the time because I was a huge news radio fan. That sitcom from uh, NBC that uh, I think it had about 14 different time slots and kept hmm. getting bounced around, but it was a bit of a stalwart sitcom. Oh, yeah. I, I, I did a rewatch, like, not too long ago. That show was, like, really, like, legit funny. Like, if they just kind of got it in the right time slot or something, it, it could have gotten kind of the same recognition as Friends or, or Seinfeld's, you know? Like, I, I really feel that in my bones. I remember watching it at the time and enjoying it week to week, and you would see a lot of stories. I remember Entertainment Weekly was like really going to bat for that show a lot and would constantly be publishing articles of like news radio the best show you're not watching and things like that like they the tv critic i can't remember who it was at the time made it like their personal mission to try to get people to watch news radio and they figured that this is the sort of cross promotion that would get anybody running over to see uh, dave, dave foley and mara turney is the leads in the uh, nbc sitcom right well did they? Because, like, they bring over Andy Dick, but they also wouldn't let him wear his glasses because they didn't want, I guess, maybe a visual continuity between what he was doing on news radio. So, oh, I guess. No, no, I, 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 I think this is a completely different era in uh, TV where you are correct. They did not want, like, people from one network appearing on another network. This is going up even into, like, the late 2000s. I, I remember uh, Nestor Carbonell. He was Richard on Lost as a recurring character, and then he got a full-time gig on CBS, and then CBS wouldn't lend him to do recurring spots on ABC until that CBS show got canceled later on in the season. It was a whole thing, but we're talking about the late 2000s. This is like the late 90s at this point, which is even 
like funnier at if you think about it. And this episode, Message in a Bottle, aired in '98. What year did um, News Radio go tell? I believe it went till 1999. Because if I recall correctly, uh, we had the tragic uh, death of Phil Hartman in 1998, if I believe. And I think the series ended after the fifth season which was one season that they went forward without uh, phil hartman which is uh very sad and the show kind of changed I, I i those first four seasons I, I really liked but uh season five um didn't quite get to me but if we get into a uh, message in a bottle this is a fun one though and, and like you have the doctor go on like I, I think his most important away mission solo mission yet and he's interacting with another iteration of the emh and you know sorry dr bashir you couldn't cut it because your parents genetically reprogrammed you <laughs> we got to go with andy dick instead <laughs> um you say that the doctor is sent on a mission i mean they really strong arm him into this mission <laughs> I was like watching it. I'm like, huh, it's funny. Like I remember in Voyager, there's a lot of little threads that pop up about, um, you know, whether the doctor has rights on the show and issues about, you know, him choosing a name or having his own quarters, things like that. And you watch an episode here and you're like, oh yeah, this is like season four. The doctor occupies a very different space within that ship. And they do not give him a lot of um, thought time to uh, debate whether he should go on this, uh, this potentially you know, existence-ending mission. Well, when he was speaking to EMH2, mm. he said that, look, I am the closest thing that you have to a hologram being sentient life. He didn't outright say that he was sentient. He said it's the closest thing, which is kind of a very curious statement because I did think of the Doctor as sentient by the time that we were in, you know, the, the halfway point of season four. What, what was your takeaway on, like, kind of the Doctor's evolution towards sentience? To me, it felt like he was, I think, at this point in the show. And I think it was just because he was allowed to exist, you know, nonstop without being turned off. He obviously had grown a lot and had experiences and seemed to be, I guess, taking part in a journey of his own choosing. Which, I mean, let's be fair. The show is also tilting us, whether it's with him or Data, heavily towards buying that they are living some sort of sentient life. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting, like, as you say, that they really uh, they really did strong harm, <laughs> arm him into this sort of position here. So I, I, I need to ask you this, because I, I alluded to it, you know, at the start here. It's like, this is a bit of a turning point in which Starfleet is aware that Voyager's out there. And, and there's a really touching moment at the end where Janeway says, you know, maybe 60,000 light years doesn't seem so far away anymore. But do you think this kind of harmed the series thematically not necessarily narratively but in that like the sh this ship is not as isolated as it was before this moment which is pretty much you know, just over the halfway mark of, of the series overall it's a difficult question because i think if you have them cut off you know just until you get further towards season seven there becomes a sense of the viewer of not actually progressing anywhere like it doesn't feel like you're i don't know getting closer to your destination and i know they establish things you know like borg space and the various species they meet that will get left behind like that was one way they had of tracking the journey but i wonder if you needed especially as we are you know just over the halfway point of the show to establish that we're getting closer to the point where home is now something we have a form of contact with like that is what's now the magnet pulling us home versus feeling i guess maybe adrift i wonder though if an episode like this may have been more of a late season six or an early season seven episode like further down in the series i i wonder if there's maybe like a, a cool cliffhanger we could have done uh season six leading into finally making real contact with starfleet i just wonder if this is just a little bit too soon like i know what you're saying about kind of that beacon of hope but I, I i wonder if having it a little bit later on it doesn't have to be this episode but some contact with starfleet it would have telegraphed more of the end game for voyager uh more so than what we got here and i wonder and not that this has anything to do with the journey of voyager but i wonder if it didn't necessarily need to be done now because you've just added seven of nine to the show which is sort of an injection mm -hmm. of new life 
So it's kind of like you can just keep the viewers hooked just by introducing this character into your show. And obviously, she's going to have a really um, pretty strong batch of stories going forward. Like, it feels like something more you pull the ripcord on when you feel like you're losing momentum versus where you've had a major shakeup and you get to actually explore some new territory. Yeah. So I'm curious. Uh, it is a funny kind of time with Voyager's development because it's, you know, Bellana's wearing the lab coat while uh, Roxanne Dawson is pregnant. I, I do enjoy that she and Seven are having tension. Those two seem like ripe for that. And I, I, I do appreciate that they're going there. Seven is giving Chakotay orders, but could you imagine how annoyed Chakotay must be having to deal with like one officer who reports to him complaining about another officer I, I don't do this with my boss like if i've got an issue with a colleague i, I do my best to just resolve it colleague to colleague because like no supervisor no manager ever wants to deal with like somebody coming up to them and complaining about this it's a it is a little unprofessional on um, balana's part but do you think balana was speaking to chakotay as her commanding officer or as more of her kind of confidant or friend that's where because I I made a note where I was like I feel like this scene would be written differently now where you have like yeah. the uh, the male superior you know having two women fighting and him saying you know like grow up and act like a senior officer it's like oof like I, ugh. okay like I don't know you would write the scene this way and it was a question that was raised where it's like we have a lot of scenes on Voyager of Bellana and Chakotay talking more as friends and confidants because of their history with the Maquis so. It's almost like it blurs the line here, and maybe that's what the conversation started out as, but Chakotay shifts into um, first officer mode. Yeah, <laughs> I do appreciate that uh, we find Torres coming to like Seven, Yeah, because she zaps him with a Herogen, uh by the end of it, you know, so eh, that, that's a subtle way of uh, getting them on the, the same side of each other. Well, it's like Bolana is like a fiery personality, and we've seen that over the course of the show, who can be somewhat, you know, experience some difficulties socially. And that's also something that Seven has. They're two very different characters. It is kind of that, you know, I hesitate to almost use the term, but like just kind of fire and ice, where it's like a very kind of hot-blooded character and a character who, you know, Seven is more like Borg-like, more controlled and computer-like. And to have that clash of those two is an interesting dynamic. I don't know that the show did as many interesting things as they could with it. Like, I don't know that this is the most interesting way to explore that, but it is an interesting tension of characters. Well, Cam, the next question I had for you is, uh, when was the next time you recall, like, some interesting tension between Seven and Bellana? Well, yeah, that's the, that's the other question. I, I don't even oh, remember. Yeah, in the Isn't there, like, maybe a couple episodes where they're, like, clashing or something? I feel like there was at least a couple. I'm sure there's some quips or remarks made, but I, I think, like, what you're pointing out, though, is, like, there's so much more to mine, and it didn't quite seem as if they did that here on the series. No, because I actually think it would be a growing point for both characters to kind of acknowledge where the other one's coming from and have more organic relationship building between these two on the show. And um, I think it's pretty safe to say when you get the e to the end of, um, you know, season seven Voyager, you're not really reflecting on all the great um, Bolana and seven stories. <laughs> no, no. Uh, hey, one thing jumped out to me while I was looking at the credits. Uh, of course, not just Judson Scott's, uh, you know, one of our favorite guest stars ever in uh, Star Trek lore. Uh, him of, uh, he was also... Uh, and was it Wrath of Khan, or am I getting him mixed up with somebody else, Cam? Yeah, he was Khan's first in command. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we also had a credit to uh, one Nancy Malone, who directed this episode. Uh, this is an era where not a lot of Star Trek episodes being directed by Wynn. We know that Gabrielle Beaumont, she did a bunch for TNG. Gates McFadden did Genesis in Season 7 of TNG. Roxanne Dawson began her directing career on Voyager. I can't really think of any other women who directed Star Trek episodes in this uh, Rick Berman-produced era of Star Trek. There, there might be one or two that I'm missing. Uh, I, I don't know if you can spot me there, Cam, but I, I, I do recall Gates McFadden saying that this was an issue. You know, there were a lot of people uh, who, you know, were, were totally qualified to do this, and it, it, she felt as if, you know, no pun intended, but the gates were closed um, to certain people within um, uh, Hollywood. 
I actually noticed this credit for, you know, Nancy Malone's credit because I actually went, oh, like that kind of surprised me because there was so few female directors during this era. So, yeah, like it was very rare. I, I also point out um, there weren't very many people of color directing yeah. episodes during this era as well. Uh, you know, we eventually had Avery Brooks, uh, LeVar Burton, Michael Dorn directing episodes. I think, now I could be wrong, I could be pulling uh, from the wrong, um, you know, part of my memory banks. I think there is one other person of color who directed some TNG episodes, maybe just one. But again, this is going back to an era where it's very much dominated by a, a certain demographic who were given a whole lot more opportunities than other folks uh, within the industry as well. And with the exception of that possible right uh, director on TNG you mentioned, but like the other ones you all named are all cast members who mm -hmm. are going through that uh, basically director training school that they ran. And so it made sense for them to get those gigs, but you're not seeing a lot of outside talent that fit those, um, you know, those qualifications. Yeah. I, I do recall Garrett Wong complaining that he wanted to pursue directing and wanted to do this director school, but uh, the doors were closed to him uh, it's, it's kind of unfortunate like a lot of these uh rick berman as executive producer stories I, do you hear many flattering stories uh that uh, that people share uh, uh at star trek conventions camp no it seems like what rick berman was very good at was just keeping the ship steady in terms of star trek content but when it comes to like you know dealing with his staff and you know various co-workers and um integration of you know different demographics behind the camera and what have you not great not great at all yeah i have to say this the uss prometheus this experimental ship this is a beautiful ship design i i absolutely loved it uh, i did recognize the sick bay i think that was one of the sing swing sets that they often use for alien ships uh i don't know where they came up with a bridge uh you know that is something it looked a little smaller than the average one but it looked very beautiful you can tell that the behind the scenes crew just put a lot of effort into this and it was cool just seeing you know like the, the final battle at the end like this is maybe a secretly expensive episode that they uh put out there whether you're casting andy dick as your special guest star putting a lot of production value into just the physical sets as well as the uh, the cgi battle that is going on at the end i was actually surprised because my memories of this one and i hadn't watched in a number of years um so going back to it I was really thinking that, oh, I'm sure it's just a redressed, you know, Voyager set or something for the Prometheus. And I was surprised to see that it had such a distinct look. And I was, yeah, like racking my brain, like, what could this be like be a redress of? I, I think you're probably right, where it was just sort of a set they used for alien bridges. Yeah, I, I kind of was bummed out that we never did see this one appear in Deep Space Nine, you know, during the yeah. Dominion War. We, we did get a Dominion War shout-out, and it was made clear that this was before the Romulans had joined uh, the Dominion. So if I'm lining up my my, my uh, star dates correctly, I think this would have been, like, uh, you know, early to mid-season six of Deep Space Nine, if that makes sense. Right, yeah, yeah. It's cool, though, to see the EMH just in the new outfit, like the new uniform. I think that's a really fun little visual, uh, visual signifier just to have the comparison of him next to the Doctor. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Okay. Uh, what do you think is cooler? Uh, Multi-vector assault mode, saucer separation mode, uh, spore drive mode, or the Deep Space Nine turns down the lights to a cloak? <laughs> okay. Um, to be fair to Discovery, I do like the black alert, like kind of uh, mood lighting that kicks in. I, I kind of find that fun. But the um, saucer separation, or the separation mode, I should say, of this attack uh, ship here, the Prometheus, is pretty cool. Very cool to see on screen. You could tell it was expensive because it was like, there's not a lot of effect shots of it. Like, they cut away pretty quickly when they show them. Yeah. So this one had some levity for me. I'm not going to lie, but I did get a couple laughs uh, when uh, the doctor is bragging about having sexual relations. And uh, <laughs> the EMH2 is like, we're not equipped. And then we find out the doctor, he says, let's just say I made an addition to my program. And I was like, whoa, okay there, sir. Yeah, Picardo said that he had pitched a lot of like humorous lines and a lot of ideas for the doctor that he felt wound up in this script. So like maybe that was something he joked about on a past episode or pitched to, uh, to you know, whether it was Berman or Braga. 
And um, it's just like, I, I kind of like when they do things like that with Star Trek, where they have, well, you know, in, in the episode Blink of an Eye, the doctor, like, fathers a child. And they kind of just hand wave it, like, yeah, don't worry about it. It just happened. And I kind of like that they have this kind of playful little moment here where they acknowledge the doctor having sexuality, but it's done in a way that's funny, but it doesn't feel like they're just kind of half-assing, you know, an explanation. Speaking of humor, Cam, uh, were you busting a gut when Neelix pronounced, uh, hop- <laughs> pronounced <laughs> <it> jalapenos? <laughs> Comic gold. I mean, this is the era where they just don't know what to do with Neelix. So it's like, okay, there's this little bit of camera time. <laughs> When was the era that they did know what to do with Neelix? I would say they had a sense of Neelix in the first... Oh, boy. I was going to say the first season because of, like, episodes like Jatrell and what have you. Yeah. But then yeah. it's like... Then I'm thinking back of, like, the jealousy over, you know, um, Kess and, like, Tom Paris. And they clearly didn't know what to do there. So I would say they had a grasp on the character's core early on. But they also, like, removed that character's darkness... As they proceeded through the show, it seemed a lot of the time. So at this point, who knows? Who knows? It's like wacky pronunciations of chili ingredients. I mean, I like an episode like Fair Trade in, in mm-hmm. which he's trying to get a map and will go to all means to do so and acquire it. Uh, that's, I think, late season three. And it was interesting because his motivation there is like we're going into a an area of space that I've not traveled to before. I don't know if I'm going to be much use to the crew anymore and i think that's telling i i yeah from a utilitarian perspective you know his his function on the ship is is he cooks he, he's not there as a guide anymore and i don't know if uh chef from enterprise he he got zero screen time i you know like it, it just kind of as a utilitarian player it, it's he didn't really have that much of an important function and the morale officer feels like a position on the ship that's doomed to B stories. Like, yeah. you know, they would force things like the, you know, the episodes where he gets paired up with Tuvok or something for an A story. But like in terms of, yeah, a week to week function on the show, not much there. But, you know, like kind of jumping off of Neelix, who can often be viewed as a um, kind of a silly character. In concept, this could be like a really silly episode. You know, you've got the Doctor beaming over and taking control of the Prometheus with another kind of wacky holodeck character. And yet, it really does work as a pretty effective sort of tense suspense story as well. There's some, you know, really solid thriller elements. So, like, how do you think this works so well as a comedic episode that still has a certain amount of gravitas to it? Well, a lot of it, like, I'll praise uh, director Nancy Malone again. I, I think back to the interrogation sequence. I, I think that's uh, good directing there. Uh, there's tension in which the Romulan is just like, you know what, uh, you better tell us what to do or else I'll delete your program. The doctor's like, well, I think you're going to delete my program even if I do tell you what's uh, going <laughs> to happen next. So why bother? You know, like, those are kind of cool moments as well. I think they, um, okay, so this is kind of an interesting thing. My memory could be getting things mixed up, but this seems kind of like a a, a tight script, uh, well-directed, and I think that Harry Kim and Tom Paris C-plot, I guess, I think that was added in later on because I recall Brandon Braga doing interviews saying that, you know, we have to write more pages than the Deep Space Nine writers just because our show moves faster. We're at a faster pace. And then there were reports going on that they were going back and filming additional scenes for some episodes because a number of episodes had come up short. And if you look at the pace that we're seeing with the Doctor stuff as well as uh, Janeway 7 and Bellana, that really seems where the, the real story was. And those moved quite fast, quite quickly. And it just seemed as if the, the Tom and Harry stuff was rather extraneous. It's extraneous, but it also comes really late in the episode yeah. where it's like we have the <laughs> the setup of uh, Neelix's chili that shows up maybe like halfway through the episode or something. And then we get this whole little, yeah, as you said, C story, D story. I don't even know what it is of like Tom Paris bemoaning a potential future in the medical bay. And it's like, wow, this really kind of came out of nowhere. And we're spending time where they're like creating a new doctor. And... I, on one hand, 
kind of found this fun. Like, it's a small little kernel of some character stuff that I thought actually probably makes the episode a little bit better even. But at the same time, the idea of, you know, Harry Kim trying to design a new EMH and it having glitches feels like it could have been more richly used in maybe like a B-plot of another episode where you had maybe some more, you know, like comedic stuff you could really delve into. Yeah, here's my solution. Copy and paste the Doctor's program. Like, if he wants to go and perform as a uh, opera singer, copy and paste the Doctor. If he gets stuck in the Alpha Quadrant, copy and paste the Doctor's program. I I think there's got to be something uh, on the cloud that they could have used, right? Well, yeah. If you're going to send the Doctor on these sorts of missions, shouldn't you have a, like, failsafe or a backup? Like, shouldn't they be talking to the Doctor and saying, like, look... If something ever happens, who knows, maybe the mobile emitter like glitches and you know you are wiped out, we need a backup program. Can you help us build one? I don't know. I'll try to like maybe explain the rationale or headcanon it, but the episode Living Witness, I think what they said is they found remnants of like the doctor's like uh hardware or it was some Voyager hardware that was backing up the doctor's program like it was kind of like the, the failsafe as you called it it wasn't kind of the prime program but the failsafe and that's how that episode came to be i think was living witness a season three episode and i wonder if that kind of explains why that piece of hardware was no longer on the ship anymore that's quite possible yeah it does feel like you could have done a whole episode built around that i mean maybe they weren't hurting i guess they were hurting for episodes if we've got the lift or whatever it was the one with Tuvac and rise. Felix on the elevator rise like i always call it the yeah. lift um yeah if we have are, rise, are you british <laughs> that's what it's called in britain <laughs> yeah yeah they changed the name <laughs> So, yeah, in the UK, do they call them turbo elevators then? <laughs> Possibly, yes. <laughs> it's very confusing. Yeah. So, yeah, like, if you are sometimes looking at some of these more dire episodes that happen along the way, yeah, you could have done an interesting episode about maybe the Doctor's feelings about being asked to create a, like, replica of himself. Like, if he's viewing himself as an individual, how does he feel about creating a duplicate you know to serve as like a backup maybe that's a you know an issue for him there's a story there i think there is yeah look overall i I think a lot of people might conceive of message in a bottle as a more slight voyager story i think it is a stealthily important one like one of the biggest turning points in all of voyager uh cam any final thoughts before we dive into a lot of uh stuff to talk about this past week yeah, one thing I thought was really interesting when I was just reading on Memory Alpha about the development of this was they shot a much like bigger ending where it was like in the um, the mess hall and it was more of the doctor kind of talking to the crew about, you know, I basically talked to the Federation, they know you're out here. And they realized they want to go smaller, which is so often not the case. And so they did a reshoot and had this just smaller scene of Chakotay and Janeway with the doctor in the medical bay. And I thought that's a really interesting choice and not a choice that a lot of shows would have made. They would have been like, no, no, keep it big. We want the whole crew cheering and, you know, pumping their fists in the air. I think this is really like a kind of a poignant moment here. I think that's a good point. And look, I go back and forth on this. And like, I was disappointed that we never got to see the doctor actually make contact with a non- holographic member of uh, Starfleet. Uh, yeah. Well, there's those commandos that ended up at the very end. But I, for a long time, I, I really wish that we got to see him speaking to Starfleet headquarters. Who knows how long that would have taken, the questions they would have happened. I think that's why they kind of excised all that, because the, the moment that really matters is the doctor passing the quote-unquote message back to the uh, ship once more. Th- that's what really matters, even though as fans, I, I think we... We kind of would have missed all, that, that moment that would have been a lot more dependent on exposition more than anything else. Totally. I mean, I think it's a very difficult thing to get across of him meeting Federation and, and explaining things in a way that's satisfying in like a couple minutes. Because he's when he comes back, he says, I told them everything. And I'm like, like, what, really? <laughs> like, that's a lot that's happened in the last three plus <laughs> seasons. <laughs> he started with the Beowulf episode. <laughs> He's like, let me tell you about this uh, young woman named Kess we met, you know? It's like, she was the greatest gift of all. And and guess what, guys? There was this Vidian woman that uh, I got to test out my uh, new uh, sexual relations subroutine on. You know, I got my first girlfriend that way, too. (laughs) There's this clown. He was really scary. (laughs) 
Hey, look, this one time, uh, the, the security chief and I, we had to rise, and so we got on a lift. <laughs> Tom Paris was once accused of murder over a woman that he was having a torrid affair with. <laughs> Uh, we could go on. <laughs> we could, we could we could go on with the crappiest Voyager adventures ever. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, I'll see a message in a bottle. Like it's funny because like there really doesn't seem to be much consensus among Voyager fans about like what are the top episodes. And this is kind of there. There are a couple you and I debated what to do, and I, they seem more like obvious ones. And maybe we'll tackle them, you know, in the, in the coming months. But um, I think this is just kind of a, a fun, more of a hidden gem. Uh, and I, I think it's probably well regarded among Star Trek fans as well, who just may not have realized how important it is to uh, the canon of Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, you know, you think of an episode like Tinker Tanner, Dr. Spy, which is maybe like a more fun Doctor episode. Maybe that one's a little bit funnier. But I think like in terms of like a lighthearted thriller episode that really does work just on a character level for the Doctor and has fun dynamics, it doesn't feel like a generic bottle episode. It feels like they were genuinely inspired and they really have fun with the premise. And that's something like, there's countless episodes we've talked about on the show and some we even haven't, where it was like a really fun premise that the writers kind of like ran out of steam and said, uh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, it feels like they were inspired all the way through. And this episode, you know, two plus decades later still plays really well. Admiral Ross, Admiral Ross, I met dinosaurs from planet Earth in the Delta <laughs> Quadrant now. <laughs> okay, Cam. Um, lots of other Star Trek stuff to talk about this week. Uh, you know, it happens every single time. As, as soon as we stop recording on Thursday, something big drops on Friday, and that's, of course, the uh, final Star Trek Picard trailer. Um, this one excites me far more than the initial trailer we got for Season 2. It uh, seems as if the show could be fun. We got the glimpse of Guinan that we've all been anticipating. I hope the show just, you know, maybe takes a page out of message in a bottle and has some real levity that doesn't involve bad French accents and berets. <laughs> I really enjoyed this trailer. It made me nervous, though, because I really, really love that trailer for season one Picard, where we had the glimpses of Seven and as well as Data. And it was like, okay, like, this is so awesome. And they're kind of doing the same thing here where I got Q and I've got Guinan. And it's like, yeah, these are the hooks they know are going to work on me. Of course, how could it not? So it really is dependent on the story they tell. And I don't know if you have this experience. It's something that I, I'm finding I have a bit of trouble with, which is these like um, uh, season TV trailers where you're condensing so much down to like two minutes that I have no real sense of what the show could be on any sort of quality level. Like I remember really enjoying some of the trailers for some of the Marvel shows. Then I watched them. I'm like, well, stretched out to six episodes. This is uh, kind of a slog. Um, and so it's like Picard, they're showing me some really fun footage, some fun character bits, characters I really like. It's just a question of, is it going to sustain, uh, is it 10 episodes, I think? Like 10 episodes of story. Well, I'm just glad that the Iron Fist did not disappoint you, Cam. That one is, you know, I didn't mention that one for a reason, because that was such a triumph when I actually watched the show. Yeah. Look, I, look our hopes are up. We've been burnt before. Uh, look, Akiva Goldsman, executive producer, he's been saying all the right things to us, but I, it's not as if I, I trust this guy at all uh, creatively. <laughs> that said, he is the one in charge of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, so I, I guess I'm going to have to take a leap of faith at, at this point. But I also have to believe that uh, if you read the uh, Michael Piller book, uh, Fade In, all about Star Trek Insurrection, uh, the, the behind-the-scenes making of the script, there is this huge email thread uh, between him and Patrick Stewart discussing the script. And the notes from Patrick Stewart about why the script is not working, I, I have a whole new respect for Patrick Stewart. Like, And he wasn't just kind of trying to defend himself or, or trying to give himself a, a lot more to do. He's saying stuff like, oh, wait, Worf needs to defend his honor again? You know, haven't we done that like a million times? I think Patrick Stewart has a lot of creative insights that can be shared with uh, the writers. And I wonder if he got to the end of last season and maybe he had a very, very serious discussion with that 
writing team about what needs to come next. And that's why I might have a little hope for season two as well. Yeah, it what you're explaining there with, you know, Patrick Stewart and his instincts that you you know you get from that fade in, it reminds me a lot of Sean Connery when I'm been reading various books on the Bond franchise over the years, and they would always say he would just like give the producers these long lists of notes, but none of the notes pretty much across the board had to do with him. They were always about like, why is the female character silent for this many pages? Things like that, like that would only improve the storytelling or the characters. And I wonder how much of that has to do with, if you are an actor, especially an actor that, you know, has had a long career, you know what it's like to be ignored in a scene or to Mm. feel like you're just not contributing much to the story, which a story doesn't get better if you have a character that's being ignored. And so maybe it's just a sense of knowing like, these characters aren't being used properly and that's making our story worse. So here's how we could make that better. What kind of notes do you think that they had or that he shared about Narc? Just a string of question marks. <laughs> yes. Or Elnor. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, look, I, I'm pumped. Um, the, the, the thing that we also found out uh, just in this past week, and it's kind of what you and I always suspected for you know the past probably year or so, there's long been rumors that uh, they're filming seasons two and three back to back. And that just was telegraphing to me that this is meant to be a three season show. And they're pretty much coming out and confirming that right now, that th- this show will end after three seasons. That sounds perfect to me. I-, I don't need Picard to be stretched out five seasons. And I also don't like having the question mark when we get to the end of season three, like, are they coming back for a season four? Are we are we awaiting a season four pickup? I like the idea of going into this, the, the, the final 20 episodes of this show with s- knowing that there will be some finality and closure. No, Cam... Whether I'll be satisfied with that finality and closure, that's an entirely different thing. Yeah, so I'm content with it being three seasons. I think that it's like a good, you know, manageable number of episodes to serve as sort of an epilogue to the Picard character. If you drag it out, suddenly you get these like convoluted things that could happen down the road that then maybe it's just unsatisfying if you have too long a journey with the character at the end of the career. So I think just kind of being this like three season little grace note, you know, post TNG era, I think that's that feels nice. It's will they deliver something that I walk out happy with given the end of season one with Robo Picard? I don't know, but here's a question maybe for you that's maybe just a bit of a fun you know, guesstimation game. We have season one, which, you know, introduced seven and really served as sort of a farewell to data. Season two, don't know the story yet, but we're seeing that Q and Guinan are going to factor in strongly. I would guess that season three will probably have a similar trend where we'll have, you know, two legacy characters that somehow serve as maybe thematic touch points for a season. Like, who do you think the two not necessarily who is it going to be because who really knows, but who do you think would be the two interesting ones to you that could kind of serve as maybe an end of a journey sort of story, you know, servicing, um, you know, function. Uh, Boothby. Hmm. That would be, are we going to not, please not uh, Grand Moff Tarkin style. (laughs) No, it's going to be, um, uh, it's all going to be like prosthetics that Patrick Stewart is going to be playing against himself. You know, like they'll do split screen and it's going to be fan- fantastic. He's, you know, g- going to do the uh, the Ray Wise uh, uh, voice as well. It's going to be, I-, I can't wait. Well, <laughs> this is a callback to a couple of years ago, a few years ago, where we wondered if like the Picard series could be him at Starfleet Academy as the yeah. new Boothby. Could it end? Could Picard end with him planting flowers at Starfleet Academy? Yes, Cam. <laughs> I am sold. If that is the legacy of Picard. I'm happy with that because uh, the question I wanted to ask you, I, and I'll get to your, your question about yeah. like possible legacy characters. The question I wanted to ask you is, is over the next two seasons, can it get worse than how we left off with season one? Like, I think if how we left off with season one, that was the last time we ever saw Picard. Uh, look, I, I, I'm happy with the goodbye to Data, but I think that would have just been disastrous end and a disastrous legacy for one Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah, it would have been so unsatisfying. It would have been the sort of ending that when you watch the end of season one Picard, they're clearly trying to rewrite the wrongs of Nemesis, you know, an ending that left no one happy. And I think had it been a one season show where the ending was him becoming Robo Picard, 
I think you would have had another, you know, decade plus of fans wanting to, you know, rewrite the ending of Picard. So uh, going to your question, though, I think that Crush, Dr. Crusher has to return for season three. I, I, I don't know if it's going to be an episode similar to Nepenthe, where yeah. she's just there for one episode. But I am convinced, like, it, it'll be a crime against, you know, Star Trek legacy if she doesn't make at least one appearance and makes a significant appearance that that really does matter i'd love to see captain crusher and maybe she's using uh her i don't know maybe she and uh captain picard or admiral picard did get married and then uh by the time we see he we're seeing him right now they've already been divorced and he just hasn't mentioned that or anything like that that, like, that could be a possibility or, or, or maybe they're gonna get married at the end of this i i, I don't know but i i think she's got to return you're asking me for a like for two legacy characters and i, I don't want to call back to anyone else in the main cast i'm trying to think about like who would make the most sense thematically of, of bringing back somebody that kind of matters to the the lore of no pun intended but the the, the lore of the, uh, the the franchise or do you have a guess of, of who might be kind of that, that go-to legacy character that makes most sense thematically and i'm not talking about you know like Worf or Jordy necessarily they, they might get an episode uh squeezed in, in in season two or season three as well but i don't know anything jumping to your mind I wonder, and I was going to say, like, I think a lot of people would say, well, you guys aren't mentioning Worf. And I don't feel like there's any need for, like, justice for Worf, given how much he got to do on DS9. Whereas I feel like with Crusher, great call. Justice for Crusher after those films. Let's give that character an ending that's really satisfying. But when we're looking at a character, a legacy character, I wonder one who would be interesting. uh, Because we see that, like, Picard has sort of lost faith with Starfleet. And the Federation, you know, uh, in, you know, the first season. And I wonder if maybe part of the journey is bringing him back to more of a restored optimism and hope in the future of Starfleet. Like, maybe a character like Admiral Janeway could serve that function or something. Mm. Yeah, I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, or uh, we, we finally get to meet Captain Naomi Wildman. You know, that, that's sure. the optimism there. Um, what about this? Um, what about Wesley Crusher? Yeah, that's a good one, actually, as well. Yep. If Will Wheaton's up for it, I would totally be interested in seeing them do, again, a character who doesn't feel like there's not a satisfying end point. Like, I feel like there's a pretty satisfying end point for Worf, uh, because I generally ignore the ending of Nemesis and just reflect back on the ending of DS9. But with, like, Crusher, uh, well, I don't know, there's, you know, Wesley going off with the Traveler. That's kind of what we have. Well, then he was in the background of the wedding in nemesis and he had a starfleet uniform on like he was yeah. back in starfleet and there was kind of a cut scene in, in which it made it clear that he was back in starfleet and i found that utterly disappointing much like how instead of being in the diplomatic corps serving as ambassador to chronos Worf was back in starfleet and i just i don't like that being the default position for all these characters where one of the things that they drive home in in Star Trek is there's no greater calling you can ever have in your life than being a member of Starfleet. So why even bother? You know, <laughs> true. But that is such an important part of Picard as a character. Like, would you be happy if we ended season three Picard with him still with his sort of ragtag group of uh, space explorers, just kind of out there bombing around and him just like cutting ties somewhat with Starfleet? Cam, you were joking. I, <laughs> I would be far happier if it's him returning to the Academy and he's there to guide young folks somehow. I don't know if he's like, you know, digging up weeds uh, or, or if it's more like he's teaching Diplomacy 101 at the Academy or something like that. I think it's him serving as an inspiration to, you know, the next generation, you know, no pun intended. But, you know, I think that would be something that I'd be far more satisfied by. That would be a nice touch, though, the next generation. Like, that is Picard looking at that next generation as we say goodbye to that era. And it is funny, though, that when you look at all of the gifts Picard has, all of the life experience, all the lessons he could teach about diplomacy, you and I keep going back to, what if he was the new Boothby planting flowers on the the grounds? (laughs) And he was boxing everyone. (laughs) 
That too. Oh my god. That well, hey, we could get Chicote back and have the Picard in the ring. <laughs> okay. Um, Cam, uh, some other uh, fun stuff to talk about. Uh, we did see that uh, Playmates is issuing another line of toys. Uh, some of them uh, look a little familiar. You know, you got your uh, Picard, your uh, Khan, your your movie era Spock and Kirk, uh, and, and you also have uh, Saru and Burnham in action figure form finally but they're wearing their seasons one and two uniforms um what do you make of playmates doing another line of these very classic looking sorts of star trek action figures i think it's really exciting because you and i have loved to collect the playmates figures and you've got like all of the DS9 ones, except for like the Esri one, which is obscenely expensive. Um, I have like all the TOS era ones and they're affordable and they're not huge. Like they're not these big bulky figures that take up a lot of space. So I think it's a really fun idea. And I would like to imagine that, um, you know, younger people can get into collecting these types of figures because, again, they can afford them. Although I don't know if kids really even collect figures anymore. I think they just play video games. Um, but nonetheless, I like the idea. The one thing is, like, a line like this, when they announce it, it's not really that exciting for me. And I felt the same way with the McFarlane, um, very short-lived figures they put out there, where it's like, out of the gate, you clearly have to just market the ones that people know and love. So I'm seeing, okay, well, there's a Picard figure, there's a Kirk, there's a Khan. That's not, like, super exciting. It's like we've got to get these ones out, get people buying them, so that we can get to the really interesting ones where they start cranking out figures that we have not gotten in action figure form before. That is what really excites me about a potential future for this line. I need a Weiyun. Mm -hmm. I need a Damar. I've already got a Garrick. Uh, oh, you know what? It's Martok. That is kind of my white whale because there's a very expensive Martok figure out there by, I think it's Art Asylum. And I, Ken, you, you know this story. You've heard it a million times. But it was, uh, they had like five of them left at a Star Trek convention. They were going for like $10 each. And I said, eh, I'll wait for the last day and I'll, I'll get a deal. What was I thinking? Like, what, I'm going to talk the guy down to $5 each? Um, I go find the, on the last day, they're all gone. I go look about it on eBay. They're all like $200 a pop going <laughs> on eBay. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? I, th those, what, five, six years later, th those figures have never reappeared. And I am kicking myself in the butt to this day. Playmates, please give me a Martok figure. That that's all I ask. Yeah, like that is what's exciting about these lines. When you go back to that classic line, like... It's cool to buy the classics, you know, like whether you're buying your, you know, various captains or whatever. But like, then there's stuff like Tosk and the Hunter. Like, there's really weird figures out there that are the ones that are, to me, super exciting to buy. So like a line like this opens the gates for that to be the case. And there's a lot of TOS figures as well covered as the TOS line was. There's still some aliens and, you know, supporting characters I'd love to get action figures of. Yeah, and I, I know it sounds kind of facetious. I, I'm not trying to be that way, but like we got a uh, Vedic Burial action figure all the way back in the day, and, and I think you've noted before he came with his own gardening tools, just uh -huh. <laughs> just what every eight year old, nine year old wants. <laughs> um, but I don't think we ever got a Vedic, uh, or I should say, Kai Win uh, nope. figure. Uh, we never got a Cassidy Yates figure. You know, like those are, we never got a Vic Fontaine figure cam. Like those are the ones that uh, we still need. And, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot left to mine, especially on Deep Space Nine. Uh, look, a, a female changeling, for example. I, I mean, there's a lot of fun things uh, that are out there that I think that, that will sell. Not, not in the same numbers as, you know, say a, a Q, you know, from, you know, TNG, but, but still, like, I, I think there's a lot of fun that could be had here. A Damar as well for DS9. And also, like, I look at other, um, you know, they did do Voyager figures, but, like, not a lot. There's a lot you can do with the various aliens they encountered on Voyager. And also, I would love to see some Enterprise figures in more this figure mold versus what they were doing, you know, in the past with the larger figures. And having, like, a Shran figure would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would love a, it sounds funny, but I, I'd really dig, like, a Soval, like, figure or... You know, like a uh, some Zindi figures as well. Like that would be pretty cool. Now you referenced the <laughs> Vedic Brow figure, or there was of course also the Threshold Tom Paris figure. 
is there like a crazy figure um across the board like whether it's from tos all the way up to picard and beyond that like you're like i would love to see this like ridiculous action figure that we haven't gotten yet you know like we've got like the fact that they put out a lita complete with a dabo table like uh-huh. as an action figure like that's uh amazing to me I, I wonder, okay, yeah, I've got one for you. How about uh, Golducott as a Bajoran? Like, oh. that, that would be, I, I would totally be down for that one. Okay, mine is the Deadly Years collection. Oh, God. How many people would actually buy those? I, like, I know it doesn't matter, but I'm I, like. I would. That's not, I know you would. I know you would, yeah. Well, who's buying the Vedic Burial figure? <laughs> I, well, I, I don't know what those folks were thinking at that time. Like, that, that's, like, just so deranged. So, basically, our advice to Playmates is just go insane. It doesn't matter if you make money. It's just about pleasing people like us. <laughs> yes, please. Please do it. Um, Cam, you know, another thing I think we want to talk about. Uh, we had plans months and months ago uh, to go to the uh, Star Trek Mission Chicago convention the uh, official star trek convention after uh, creation entertainment lost their a license a few years back and uh, we didn't go to i think it was i think there's an official convention in like new jersey or new york um we never went to that I, i'd love to go to new york uh, one of these days as well I was, I was really looking forward to chicago but cam um this Chicago convention seems like it's dead just if you look at the fact the number of guests uh they've stopped adding people on i think we got like a max of like seven or eight guests maybe even fewer than that ever added they stopped making any sort of uh squeaks on social media on um, uh, their own social media account back in november nothing since then if you look at read pop and they're the ones that are running this convention their social media uh, nothing on their social media for about a uh since i think may of 2021 i think that it's dead but here here's the problem they haven't announced any sort of postponement or uh, cancellation. I was on the official Facebook page um, earlier today, and there are convention goers that are kind of getting nervous. I'll, I'll read some of the comments here. Um, one says, hey, talk to me. Tell me something, anything. Lie if you have to, but <laughs> but just say it now, please. Are we still on or what? Um, another person says, 75 days left and only six guests announced. Is this getting canceled slash postponed or not? It's like another person says, I'm nervous about buying a ticket since you have refused to update anything since September. Okay, look, if they have to cancel it, have to postpone it because of COVID, uh, more rigid restrictions in some states versus others, I get it. But their communication skills on this, you you gotta at least say hey look we are trying to navigate this situation you can't just go radio silent like you're burning potential customers down the road i don't really think they have any good options before them what what are they going to do postpone it until the fall this is when you're coming off um star trek uh las vegas at the very end of august and what you're trying to go back to back with people that just did a star trek convention like a month uh, and a half earlier people that spent a lot of money doing so like i i don't think they can do that i think the best they can do is postpone it one more year but i don't know that that just seems like a total bummer as well i, I think it's kind of damned if you do don't damned if you don't right at, at this moment and also correct me if i'm wrong and i might be isn't like destination in october or something like that usually yeah i think so I, and and i could understand them not being too worried about competing against uh, something in Europe. As, and I understand yeah. them not being too worried about um, competing against the Star Trek crews, because I think both those things are catering to very different audiences as well. I just wonder if in terms of like grabbing press and whatever with stories coming out of the con, if you're that close to destination and, and stuff like that, it, it suddenly... Uh, this being the first quote-unquote official Star Trek con that Pop is putting on, you want a certain amount of fanfare one would think but like this is like kind of embarrassing at this point what do you think it means for the future of conventions and we've talked about this before with regards to creation entertainments i think we did an entire episode kind of talking about that experience and how creation has just kind of really 
cut down on the number of smaller Star Trek conventions that they've been doing over the last few years. We got to go to San Francisco in 2017 for one of the smaller cons, and it's a very different experience. We still had a lot of fun, but I don't think there's really been any opportunities since that year for smaller conventions. And I think if you've got like <laughs> the official license holder essentially just canceling or just leaving it completely dead i can't imagine paramount being happy with this business arrangement that they've struck since telling uh telling creation entertainment to take a hike no and i mean the one thing too creation was going to do those sci-fi summits there was one scheduled for vancouver which kind of were a return of these smaller cons that maybe they were going to test the waters to start them up again and um obviously covid really put the brakes on those but it feels like creation, and I know there's people that have quibbles with the way creation does its cons, but it feels like they just have a general understanding how to do these events. And if you're going to go you know, somewhere else, if Paramount and CBS wants to pull the license from creation and go somewhere else, you have to have like a really efficient con that's going to take place to establish why people should be buying their tickets to that versus what creation's doing. Because obviously, you know, competition's important and actually makes each side generally better. Um, but they are certainly not doing that right now. Creation is putting out regular guest updates and their cons not till, you know, this upcoming August. And they are still like almost every week sending us emails with guest updates and contests and all that sort of stuff. Who would buy a ticket to Chicago right now? My advice would be to anyone listening who's on the fence, don't buy your tickets right now. Just wait yeah. and see because it is not a good idea to be handing over your credit card and getting that uh, ding, you know, and having to pay that off right now. Uh, because believe me, tickets are probably not going to be flying for this one. So you're probably safe. And chances are it's not happening anyway. Okay. Well, look, uh, we'll talk about the book cam of Borton Fett in, in just a moment. But uh, Cam, why don't we kind of uh, wrap things up before we get into spoiler territory with uh, Boba Fett? Yes. Okay. So Tyler, what are we doing next week? Well, we are going to wrap up uh, this portion of the season of Star Trek Prodigy. It's a two-part kind of finale before the next hiatus. And I'm looking forward to it. We've really been enjoying Prodigy, so I think there'll be lots to talk about when we uh, talk about the, the two episodes that we prepped for us to dig into. Definitely, and it's been a really great journey since the last hiatus, so I don't even remember when that was. So uh, can't wait <laughs> to uh, kind of wrap it up again. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to tackling Prodigy. It's been an interesting show so far. Um, so if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. And folks, uh, in addition to jumping over our Facebook page and liking it, uh, go to your Apple podcast, your Stitcher, your, your Spotify, what have you, uh, give us five stars. It's only going to help people find us. Oh, this is a free podcast, no advertisements. We just want to get the word out. And this is the only thing that we ask that uh, you guys do. That's right. And of course, you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in. <laughs> Vampire sex aliens almost took Harry Kim Smith. And you can find me at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. N as in news radio crossover seems inevitable for Star Trek Picard. <laughs> okay. So, Tyler, the book of, what is it? The book of Bourbon Fett? I can't even keep track of what it's called anymore. <laughs> it's the, the book cam of Borton Fett. Um, we realize this pun is terrible and we are stretching it really thin there. But Cam, is it damning that the best episode of this entire terrible, terrible series, miniseries, season one, who knows what it is. It's not even a real episode of Boba Fett. It's The title character is excised from it all. And it's and we're not exaggerating. It is an episode of The Mandalorian instead. Yeah, like Boba Fett does not feature into this episode. We have the theme music and we have... You know, Ming-Na Wen showing up in the final seconds of the episode. But otherwise, yeah, it's a Mandalorian episode. And it's not just a satisfying hour for me because it's a Mandalorian story. Because I think you could make a satisfying Boba Fett hour. I think you made a sat satisfying hour of any show. But it's like watching it, it was like, oh, this is why this show clicks. There's an aspect to the character of the Mandalorian that I think is just really working. And frankly it easily in an alternate universe could have just been Boba Fett. Like you could have totally made the show The Mandalorian and just named him Boba Fett. It would have still worked. Yeah. But um, the fact is like they've built up mystery around this character and they've done it 
in a way that they've somehow succeeded at something that I think is very difficult, which is having a character who's mysterious, but not bland or underwritten, where everything the character does, there's purpose and little moments, you know, showing his face, you know, in season two, have huge dramatic, you know, like punch to it. And you just look at an episode like this, where so much is just based on the body movement and the decisions of the character and me trying to read into who this character is versus Boba Fett, who's kind of just dumb and all the mystery is drained out of this character. The other thing is we know what Mando's uh, motivation is. And, and that's one of the most, if not the most important thing that characters need to have. It is the most important thing characters need to have in anything, whether it's literature, film, or television. What What is Boba Fett's motivation, Cam? Like, I like why does he want to be this crime lord? Like, I don't really get it. I, I know there's all the Tusken Raider stuff, you know, whatever happened to that tribe. But is, is that really why he wants to take over... Bon Fortuna, or not Bon Fortuna, Bib Fortuna. Uh, is that the name of the, uh, the the predecessor? You are correct, yeah. Okay, Bon Fortuna is how uh, people in Italy say goodbye. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gold. <laughs> cool, yeah, okay. But um, I don't know, it's just like, I, I and also I don't really care about like Boba Fett's like motivations in, in that show. It's like the character is bland. I don't care about his motivations, whereas I get all of that from Pedro Pascal, who, let's be honest, he just like uh, had to go into the uh, the voiceover booth uh, that day to get cash in a big paycheck. Like it was his stuntman performing this entire episode, and I, I don't know. Like it just, I, I guess Mando has figured it out, and I think they need to just leave this Boba Fett, you know thing as a one-off and never return to it maybe he comes back as a recurring character in some capacity in the 40 different star wars spinoffs that we're going to be getting in the next year or so yeah like maybe you could have made an interesting boba fett story about him becoming you know ruler of the underworld if you were tackling it from a more ruthless point of view of like boba fett as i think the way he was seen before before he became whatever he is in this modern uh, Star Wars era. But, like, that's not the show that Disney Plus would ever make. And so they're kind of stuck with this soggy, like, drifter Boba Fett who doesn't seem to have any direction, which doesn't make him particularly interesting because he always seemed like a very focused, de uh, determined character in the past. So I, I don't know what they're doing. But, like, this episode was just a joy. And I think one of the things it does really well is that, like, you have a general philosophy to what the Mandalorians are and why it matters to the character. Like, there's mythology building going on that doesn't feel suffocating, but it's explained in a way that's very clean, and you go, okay, I understand how this applies to the character's journey. And it's not necessarily going to bog down a young viewer. A young viewer can just, like, kind of go, okay, cool. But it's enough for, like, an adult to hook onto and read into the journey of the character. But even like little moments with a green child alien turning to uh, Mando and just staring at him on the commercial flight, like that doesn't seem like the kind of stuff that we would get in Boba Fett. And, and it's kind of like, and uh, well, I, I wonder if the series, The Mandalorian, kind of ruined the chances of the book of Boba Fett ever being good because you alluded to it. It's just like, the adventures that we're following with Mando, that's the stuff that we'd want to see with Boba Fett. So you can't really have two bounty hunter shows. It would just be very derivative. I I think they kind of screwed themselves over. And I, I think it should have just been like, let, let's leave Boba Fett alone as kind of a recurring character within the Star Wars universe. Yeah. And someone online, I can't remember who it was, so I uh, apologize for not giving them credit, but like pointed out that like we're seeing the Mandalorian character somehow comes across as more ruthless and dangerous and deadly in this one episode than anything you see from Boba Fett, a character who was renowned for that in the films. It's just very, it's a strange creative decision. So yeah, I'm fine with leaving Boba Fett behind, but just this episode, and it was directed by Bryce Dallas Howard, who I think did a really fantastic job, not just with the character stuff of Mando, but also just the spectacle. They really broke the bank on this one. There was so many moments of just, like, awe, just for me watching it as a Star Wars fan, whether it was just him testing out that new, you know, fighter um, jet he's got, 
or just seeing the destruction of the Mandalorian homeworld with the probes and the um, assassin droids. Just so many amazing visuals in this one. Uh, why was it you kept texting me while you're watching it? And it was kind of awkward, but uh, you kept asking me, you know, like, uh, wh wh where is Cara Dune? Like, uh, I, I want to see some Cara <laughs> Dune right now. Like, she, wh wh what happened? Like, Gina Crano is my favorite actress in the world, Tyler. Wh where is she? Like, wh why were you so upset about that, Cam? <laughs> I was in tears through the whole episode, yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, the only thing that was missing what was uh, <laughs> one shout out of Mando, you know, coming from yeah. uh, grief. Uh, that that would have been great. Carl Weathers for the win. Carl Weathers for the win. <laughs> one thing that sent chills down my spine, though, was the fact that the episode, you know, ends with Mando saying he will work, you know, with um, Boba Fett as a courtesy. But first, he has something to do. We have two episodes of Book of Boba Fett left. Are we going to see resolution of this in the next two episodes? Or are we setting up a Return of the Mandalorian in Season 2 Boba Fett or something? Uh, that, that frightens me to no end. I, 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 I don't even know what the best case scenario is other than maybe Episode 6 is we're, we're getting a Boba Fett... A story and a Mando B story and then season seven is where they come together again and then we get some sort of conclusion to this very terrible show that they've made and it's like how can it end we have Boba Fett sitting on a throne um, pretty much all day and like I don't know does he just like kill one of his opponents at the end of the season you're like well he's still sitting in that chair <laughs> No, it's somebody pushes him into another Sarlacc pit. I'd be open for that, actually. That's yeah. a more fun idea. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, well, we'll find out when we tackle the next couple episodes of uh, The Book of Boa Fett in the upcoming weeks. But, uh, yeah. It will be interesting, Cam, where we're capping off Boba Fett the uh, same week that we are getting the return of Discovery. Uh, both series have been frustrating in their own ways, but until next time, uh, tune in for what we really are delighted by, which is Star Trek Prodigy. Transfer complete.